Well, good morning again. Uh, if you're in person or you're on YouTube, we're really glad that you can join us for worship this morning. Uh, if you are on YouTube, uh, we would just say we'd love for you to be here in person soon. In the meantime, if you're new to North Cross virtually, just maybe send an email, info at northcrosschurch.com or sit at northcrosschurch.com. We'd love to know who you are uh, and a little bit more about you. If you're new to North Cross physically this morning, we're really glad that you're here and we do have a welcome table. We'd encourage you to go and, and you can sign up for our emails or our e-newsletter. Um, also, there is uh, a few things that are just uh, souvenirs for the trip to North Cross. So we're really glad that you came uh, and grabbed one of those souvenir packages. And then uh, if you're here and you've been here more than once or more than twice, uh, we're glad that you're here. And maybe you're saying, how can they get more involved in this community? Uh, well, we push you towards the, the events that are in your e-bulletin that Matt announced earlier. But really, we'd especially invite you to look at life groups and and join a life group or maybe try out a life group. And you can try out more than one um, and um, may, may find a place that you can feel like this feels a little bit more like home. Uh, well, we as a church are continuing to lean into the season of Lent. And we're doing that by looking at the book of Ruth together. The book of Ruth has these demonstrations of love that push us into self-examination of our own love. The love that kind of wells up within us and that we can celebrate. But also uh, sometimes when we look and we find what's lacking, that there doesn't feel like the love uh, in our life or a love uh, inside of us. And really that self-examination pushes us to the center of this story. These are these personal stories of real historical people, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, but really often humming along behind the scenes, behind these human beings is the love of God. God who is in invisibly working the angles. He's wholly, stubbornly, uneasily, extravagantly, and with great risk, showing and pouring forth his love. But before we ask about our love and look for God's love again, would you pray with me and for our time together in God's words that he's given to us this morning? Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for these words. And we want to hear them well. Um, we want to listen. And would you say, would you calm our hearts? Um, would you still our thoughts? And look, that's hard. We confess that sometimes we feel more mixed up when we try to, to be more still. But we pray that you would enter in and that you would speak to us through your word, by your spirit, and that you would teach us Lord, if that looks like me getting out of the way, that's fine. And I pray that you, Jesus, would be more lifted up, more believable and beautiful in the eyes of our hearts, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen. When I was in the fourth grade, uh, our teachers told us that we we're going to have a class play. And it was going to be based on Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer. Uh, with all of my friends, I eagerly looked at all of the possible parts I could play, and I set what I thought was a pretty realistic goal. Um, I wasn't going to go for the main lead. Tom Sawyer, I couldn't pull that one off. But I thought, he has a younger brother, and his name is Sid. <laughs> I think I got this. And so Tom's annoying younger brother named Sid um, felt like a fit. I mean, we shared the same unique name. Um, my sister had repeatedly reminded me that I was, yes, her younger, annoying brother. 
And so I thought, this is mine to get. And so tryouts came and went, and I anxiously looked at my name, looked for my name in the Tom Sawyer cast list, uh, and I was not Tom. That was expected. But then I looked down, and I saw that I was not also Sid. And I was a little bit heartbroken. Uh, and then I realized that here my part was a one-line Tom's friend part. Something to, hey, Tom, want to look through this shiny piece of bottle glass? Nailed it. Still there. Still got it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yep, yep. That's why they, they knew. Um, really, the fourth grade Tom, so we were casting, was the beginning of the end, as you can tell, of my drama career. <laughs> Uh, did not go well. After five years of licking my wounds, I decided to try out again for a play in ninth grade, and, and I didn't even get a one-line part this time. <laughs> so um, anyway, really, here's the thing, though. Off the stage, behind the floodlights, I have been a brilliant actor my entire life. <laughs> my whole life, since I was very young, I have been cast in these different roles, memorizing the scripts, and I have been trying to nail all of these slightly different parts. Saying all my lines right on cue, giving the audience what they want to hear, fearing kind of bad reviews, living for the applause, shushing my inner critic. As a child, I played the good kid beautifully. In high school, I played the star scholar athlete. In college, I was the up for anything, fun guy with long hair. And as an adult, I played the prep school tweed jacket teacher coach for a while, and now my off-Broadway billing would be Mr. Lovable, or maybe Reverend Lovable, but has it together pastor friend. <laughs> my guess is you're playing a role too. What casting call have you been asked to answer? And we could tell by the exhaustion and the restlessness that we feel that our acting inevitably produces that we are playing roles, can't we? We feel the weight of our self-doubt. What happens when the good kid or the scholar-athlete's success fails at something big? Or when Mr. or Mrs. Fun up for anything feels very serious, maybe even sad? Or when Mr. or, when Mr. or Mrs. Nice and has it together is actually kind of out of sorts? What do we do with that? Ruth chapter three shows us Ruth as she puts on and puts off a few different roles. And we get to see the various scripts other people have written for her. We see this by the different ways that Ruth is addressed and even dressed. My daughter, she's dressed as a bride. She's called your servant, a worthy woman, and always the very useful, the Moabite. This constant casting and recasting leads to an intentionally repeated question. One that is asked of Ruth first by Boaz and then by Naomi. In verses 9 and verse 16 in the original Hebrew of our passage, it's actually the same question. Both Boaz and Naomi ask Ruth, who are you? Who are you? The way the narrator bookends this episode of Ruth with that question lets us know that Ruth's answer to that question is essential. The answer to the question who she is is essential to understanding how she can rest, the way she understands herself, right? The way she's settled about herself. That will lead and can lead to her rest, 
rest, this word that is a loaded word that's used at the very beginning of the passage in verse 1 and the very end of the passage in verse 18. The same is, of course, true for us, right? That question of who are you, answering that question, speaks to our need for rest. So Ruth chapter 3 verses 1 through 18 shows us where true rest is found. God gives us an authentic role as his children, and this part to play allows us the freedom to speak our own lines and to take risks for love. So God has cast us as his child, and he's given us the freedom, the freedom to speak our own lies and to take risks for love. We'll look at what Ruth's risky life of love calls us to by continuing to use his acting metaphor. You can find the following outline projected behind me or uh, in your e-bulletin. So we're going to look through it together. So if you could put that up. First, in verses 1 through 5, Naomi writes a script for Ruth. And this helps us see how we are all living out roles in other people's scripts for us. Second, verses 6 through 9, we're going to look at how Ruth improvises her lines and changes her role. And this helps us see how to flip the script and to speak our own lines. Then third and finally, verses 10 through 18, God through Boaz helps helps to recast Ruth. And this helps us to see how we suspend our disbelief about ourselves and about God. That's what we're going to look at. And we're going to begin with verses 1 through 5 and how Naomi's script for Ruth exposes the scripts that we all live by. So do you join me there? Chapter 3, verse 1. This this verse happens roughly seven weeks after the end of chapter 2. Then, uh, in chapter 2, when Naomi had discovered that Ruth, had her chance had chanced upon the field of Boaz. Boaz is Naomi's kinsman redeemer. And Naomi saw the generosity and responsibility that Boaz had exercised towards Ruth. We can imagine that Naomi kind of gave something of a fist pump. And she started rubbing her hands together. And she thought, here we go. Here we go. Maybe the future is going to change. Maybe Buzz is going to buy back my husband's farmland. Maybe, just maybe, Buzz is going to decide to marry Ruth, a young widowed woman who has no sons. Ruth, my Ruth. But seven weeks later, in chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi is practically pacing, hands behind her back, and impatience. Yes, yes, yes. Boaz has given us grain to eat, but she, particularly Ruth, she has no rest. And rest specifically defined in that day was the house of a husband. That's where that language comes in. So well-pressed, buttoned-down, stiffly starched Boaz seems to have cold feet when it comes to Ruth, right? Perhaps because of sensitivity to her mourning or just plain old male passivity, we're not sure, but Naomi takes it into her mind to scheme a plan. She scripts a play for Ruth. Verses 2 through 4. This is my my authorized paraphrase version. (laughs) See, Boaz is winnowing barley tonight on the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put it on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. That's actually in the text, not a paraphrase. From its premise to its details, the plan seems well-meaning, 
it seems well-meaning, right? But it's also highly questionable. <laughs> Think about this. For instance, what does Naomi intend to happen there on the threshing floor? Is she trying to take advantage of Boaz by surprise with some wine in the system? Does Naomi want Boaz to lose himself at the smell and sight of Ruth? After all, the language here is, is the plan, the language of the plan here is full of suggestive sexuality. Uncovering feet in the Old Testament often refers to um, full nakedness. And the words like no or lay down are often Hebrew euphemisms for sexual intercourse. Will the marriage plans then come from Boaz's remorse and sense of duty after an indiscretion? Or best case scenario, Naomi assumed Boaz was to be a worthy man, as chapter two is shown and said, and so he won't take advantage of Ruth's vulnerability, but still, Naomi has to know that Boaz is not the first in line to marry Ruth as a, as a kinsman redeemer, which he later tells us in verse 12. So likely Naomi's plan here, her script for Ruth, is sort of a risque, ancient version of a hinged dating profile, okay? It's, or maybe it's an in-person version of a 20th century personal advertisement in a newspaper, okay? This is how Sinclair Ferguson puts Naomi's personal ad for Ruth. Single Moabite woman, widowed, childless, lives with mother-in-law, seeks well-to-do Bethlehem businessman to marriage, must love mar mother-in-law. <laughs> While most of the scripts people write for us are often not as dramatic as Naomi's in these verses for Ruth, I would argue most of the scripts that we live by or are written for us are just as well-meaning and often just as questionable. <laughs> but let's start with theologian Walter Brueggemann and his definition of what exactly a script is. This is what, how he says it. Scripts are the stories we tell each other that eventually become normative for us. We trust them. They help you see that these particular encounters are not merely accidents or incidents, but they can be seen in terms of playing out of a script. So listen, everyone has a script, right? We all have a script. And we trust a script to order and make sense of the events in our lives. Because if we look at our events one by one in isolation, they can feel like just accidents. And so we script them. We understand them as a story. And these scripts compel us to play a part or role in our own lives. But what's also helpful about this scene is watching Naomi write Ruth's script for her. 55 words in the Hebrew. And then Ruth, who gives just four Hebrew words to say, essentially, yes. Naomi is Ruth's mother figure. And a and Christian uh, clinician and psychologist, Henry Cloud, tells us that our first scripts are usually written by our parents. Right? And we say yes to those scripts to gain connection with our parents. Right? And like Naomi's plan, parents often cast us in roles that are really well-meaning. Right? They want our rest. But the acts and scenes can have some flawed frameworks and details, can't they? According to Henry Cloud, as we grow up, we see these things a little bit more, and we want to separate from mom and dad, and so we pick up these different scripts, not just the parent scripts, but scripts of peers and other mentors like coaches and teachers and, and even pastors. But again, while usually well-meaning, these scripts can be flawed too. 
For instance, most scripts that we get often maximize what we're good at and minimize what we're bad at. And that makes sense, right? I'm all for strength finding as a personality test. I'm okay with that. But I'm not okay with the fact that I I want to be loved when that part of me that's strong fails, right? I want my weaker parts to get loved too. And I don't want to pretend like they don't exist. And a lot of times the scripts that we live by do that. But more often than not, we kind of get locked into these parts that we play in our lives, right? Performing a role perfectly in order to get love. And so we begin to think in the words of Brene Brown, if I look perfect, if I live perfectly, if I do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. But that tightrope walk starts out with smiling and winking emojis, then it often falls into anxious sweating emojis, eyes closed, frowny face, then no mouth emojis, right? That's the internal emotions. And then the blame turns inward too, doesn't it? It's my fault I'm feeling this way because I'm not good enough. And of course, this just reads, what does it lead us to do? We just redouble our performance of that particular script. Or we just say, no more of that. I'm going to find a new role where I don't have to be that me who feels that way about, well, me. I don't want to do that anymore. But look, Ruth's improvisation on Naomi's script verses six through nine, shows us a different way forward. We don't have to live that way. Here's how to flip the script and speak our own lines. Point two of our sermon this morning. At first, in verses six through eight, it looks like Ruth is going to do just as her mother-in-law commanded her. It seems like she's going to try and play the seductress part perfectly. And look, there is a place for honoring elders and parents like Naomi, but it's hard to overstate not just the potential potential danger, but also the sheer silliness of Naomi's plan here, okay? Let me just illustrate for you what this looks like, okay? There are some ham-fisted stereotypes that Naomi is playing straight to that I think we have to kind of modernize the story to get. So I'm going to do that for you just, just here, okay? I'd invite you to imagine Ruth showered, shaved, perfumed up, put on put in a pale powder blue prom dress. She's a wash and glitter and sequins. Her hair is up loosely, snaking in small, tight-knit curls. Her lips are glossy, with bubblegum-flavored glossy lip gloss. She's even got a fragile white-flowered corsage on her wrist. Now imagine Boaz. He's had his hot uh, hot sauce uh, buffalo wings, blue cheese, cheap domestic beer, topped off for fresh best steak with Cuban cigars. His buddies and employees have all left or found a place to crash post-poker night in his man cave, the threshing floor. And Boaz is snoring. His head is resting against his pile of grain jackpot winnings. In his sauce-stained plain white t-shirt and plaid boxer shorts on a tan corduroy couch, Boaz is snoring, open mouth, sleeping hard. Then Ruth, dressed like a high school prom queen, tiptoes in, perhaps awkwardly wobbling on her high-heeled shoes, and lifts up Boaz's blanket, exposing his feet to the giraffe from a left-open screen door. 
and Ruth crouches just inches from his snores, well within range of that stale, amazing breath. And she just waits for him to wake up from the chilly draft that she's set against his feet. Verse 8, Boaz awakens, startled, a nightmare? Is he afraid of losing his grain stack? Or just the cold breeze that's blown over his toes? We don't know. Whatever the reason, Boaz sees and smells a woman hovering there above his lower body, and he hoarsely asks, who are you? Good question. That question, though, must have been so shocking for Ruth, right? This is where the script starts to get unrattled. So there it is. Ruth is dressed up, and she's sent out as she was, and Naomi's script told her, right, that he would tell Ruth what to do. But instead what happens? Boaz asks a question. And that script that Naomi wrote for Ruth breaks down like all human scripts break down. And so Ruth, in that jarring moment, in the darkest part of the night, in a man-only space, Ruth answers Boaz's question. I am Ruth, your servant. In the Hebrew, she's saying, I am an amah, a marriageable servant, as opposed to what she described herself and aspired to in chapter 2, a shipka, an unmarriageable servant. But instead of stopping there or asking Boaz how he wants to handle the situation now that they're both awake in the threshing floor in the middle of the night, Ruth ad-libs. She speaks her own lines and tells him what to do for her. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. In more modern English, Boaz, fulfill the blessing you prayed over me seven weeks ago. Be God's wings of refuge for me. Give me the rest that comes from marriage and restore the land and fortunes of Naomi as our redeemer. You see, Ruth is deciding what's best here. She's the one who gets down on one knee and proposes to Boaz, spread your wings over me. And she makes sure also to ask Boaz to take care of Naomi for you are a kinsman redeemer. Because you see, Ruth realized something really vital. She realizes that Naomi left herself Naomi left Naomi out of the future rest in her script for Ruth. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? So Ruth has to flip the script to take the pen and write Naomi back into the scene. And even more than that, Ruth is trying to quit the role playing altogether. She's directly asking Boaz for what she wants. She's asking, will you love me for me? Will you love all of me? All my foreignness, my social inferiority, my youth, my poverty, my mother-in-law, our family, Bo, will you have the real, full, and perfect me? Will you redeem? Will you spread your wings over my expert self-condemnation? Before we get to Boaz, and ultimately to Jesus' response to that question, I I, I just want to pause and actually ask you, to ask for what you really want. Maybe that's novel, but if you're like me, that's really, really hard. Go to God in prayer and ask him to set you free from performing your lines. Ask God to protect you in your fears. Will I, will you risk asking God to take care of us when we've done it again and we've disappointed people by breaking character? Will we ask him to take care of us, to love us in our failure and in our inabilities? 
but also would you ask for what you need from other people? Would you ask the other Boazes in your life for what you need? And will we stick our necks out for other people? Will we, will we offer ourselves for the Naomi's in our lives? Yes, I get it. Asking and getting vulnerable can look a little bit compromising. I don't know, like Ruth in the middle of the night at Boaz's feet, hypothetically. Okay, praying and sticking our necks out isn't easy, could end poorly, <laughs> is quite easily misunderstood, but paying attention and stepping out of our social roles is how we risk and get love. Don't you want to be loved for who you are and not how well you play the part? Don't you want all of you, the secret parts of you, the worst parts of you even, to be loved? Perhaps G.K. Chesterton understood the freedom from play acting, from worrying how we come across, when he said this, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. <laughs> if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. We can only imagine that was like the theme verse that Ruth slapped as she went up into the threshing floor out of her locker room in Naomi's house. <laughs> but really, the reason we can risk freedom and we can risk that love and we can honestly ask for what we need is because God responds to us like Boaz responds to Ruth, but all the more so, even way more so. In verse 10, Boaz responds to Ruth's improvisation by blessing her. And this blessing, this love is script shredding. It's a script, it's a script shredding kind of love. It's how we suspend our disbelief. And that's our third and final point this morning. But look, notice that Boaz celebrates and takes an eye on and carefully details how Ruth has stuck her neck out for Naomi, yet again. And his only command to Ruth in that moment is, do not fear. He tells Ruth that he, Boaz, the superior in that time and place and all the gender, class, economic, nationality, and religious matters, that he, Boaz, is going to do for you, Ruth, all that you ask. Verse 11, he's going to spread his wings, his arm and his life over all of Ruth, all of her burdens, all of her blemishes, all of her beauty. Boaz will redeem Ruth and Naomi, and he will take on and he will solve their debts and their troubles as if they were his own. In the meantime, Boaz looks out for her reputation and safety during the night in verses 13 and 14, and looks out for her and Naomi in the morning with six shovelfuls full of barley, verse 15. And then according to verse 18, Boaz will not rest, but will settle the matter today. But we kind of have to ask here, why? Why would Boaz respond to Ruth's big, slightly indecent ask, her very risky actions in this way that he responds? Boaz tells us in verse 11, and it has to do with the way that he is re-answering his question for Ruth in verse 10, right? He asks, who are you? And this is what he says, Ruth, who are you? You are mine. You're a daughter. You're a member of this family. You're no servant. You're a worthy woman. 
Ruth isn't a script. Ruth isn't a role. Ruth isn't a part to play perfectly. She's a human being. She's a daughter. She's a family member. She's worth it. So will God, will he love me for me? Will God love all of me, the real, full, and perfect me? What about when I fail big time? When I'm mad or when I'm sad? When I'm all out of sorts and a mess? Will you, God, redeem us? Will you, God, spread your wings over us, over my and your expert self-condemnation? The answer is clear. And now, my daughter, and now, my son, do not fear. I will do all that you ask. Why? Because God tells us in the New Testament, who are you? You're mine, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, with whom I'm well pleased. And what's more, well done, he will say, good and faithful one. Enter into your daddy's joy. And the New Testament can say this and not flinch because before time and the universe began, God the Father wrote a script for God the Son. And it is beyond well-meaning, although it has been historically questioned over and over again. And this script was and continues to be a perfect one. God the Son, Jesus, perfectly performed his Father's script for us. Jesus risked his divine reputation, exposing himself first to a fragile baby body and then to a mini-series of misery, growing up poor in a foreign land without rest until he settles the matter of our rest by laying himself down on a cross for us. His nakedness uncovered, risking compromise, extreme vulnerability, risking big-time failure and easy misunderstanding. Jesus' love held him there on that cross, nailed tight for us. And that's our guarantee. And like his son, my dad, had an early and unsuccessful career that I'd like to end on, acting career that I'd like to end on. My dad had an early and unsuccessful acting career, and the way he tells it is that one day, his mom, my grandmother, asked him to go to downtown in a small town in Virginia where he's from in order to pick up something for her. And my dad was protesting because he was very worried about running into this bully, this mean older kid that would give him a hard time, and he didn't want to meet him outside of school. But my granny wouldn't hear anything of it and told him to go. And so my dad took matters into his own hands. He took a bottle of rubber cement and a bag full of cotton balls, and he carefully, puff by puff, pasted a white beard onto his face to disguise himself as he walked to be an older somebody else in front of this bully. He looked in the mirror in satisfaction, and my dad walked confidently into downtown on that Saturday with a beard made of white cotton balls, and he was clearly playing a different part. Of course, his role and his homemade costume were utterly silly and didn't fool anyone. In fact, he actually ran into that older, mean kid who just looked at my dad and just started laughing. He laughed so hard that my dad started laughing too because they both realized this was not working. But it kind of worked in a way. So look, 
if what the Bible says about Jesus is true, that God has showed up and loved the worst of us, if that's true, then we're set free, right? We're free to ask. We're free to risk. We're free to love. I'm free to laugh at the way my life sometimes looks like a white cotton ball beard to everybody but me. I am. Who am I fooling? Everyone knows I've got my share of shame and judgment and blame. And Jesus is just saying to all of us, I see you. Take off the cotton balls. Come and rest. And even now, we get to do the same. We get to to listen closely to who somebody is behind their lines they're giving us, beneath their stage makeup, beneath the dried up rubber cement and wispy cotton balls. And we improvise. We get to improvise God's risky love on his behalf. And we get to say to other people, even in this room, I see you. I see all of you. Do not fear. For we have a redeemer. The Lord our God has redeemed you. You are his. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words to us and the scene and the way that it, it, it could unravel us. Um, it exposes all of our fears. <laughs> our fears of not getting what we want and maybe even then getting what we want and being exposed. And I pray that in that exposure, Father, that you would teach us about our hearts, but most importantly, that you would show us your love, that we'd feel it down to our toes. We'd know what you think of us, that the word love wouldn't capture the half of it. I ask for us to rest in that. In your name, Jesus, amen.